ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald with The Game Changer Network, and we are going to be talking today about sustainability. And our author guest today is Freya Williams, and the book is Green Giants, How Smart Companies Turn Sustainability into Billion-Dollar Businesses. Welcome. Thank you, Chiki. Great to be with you this morning. Well, it is terrific to have you here. And, you know, this is an interesting topic that those uh, of our listeners who, who are perhaps entrepreneurs or solopreneurs uh, maybe don't think a lot of, about sustainability. And our, our guests or our, our listeners that listen uh, and have corporate roles, perhaps they actually have somebody in the company who is in charge of this. But what we're really talking about today is the topic of profitability and and of the long-term growth of companies who decide that this is going to be a core part, not just of what they do, but of who they are, right? I love the way you put that. Yes, that's exactly right. And what I see so often is that Companies think of sustainability as somewhere to maybe save money. Maybe they think of it as kind of donating money or even an area that's going to cost them money. But what I'm trying to help people see through the data in the book is that actually sustainability can be central to how you make money, a lot of it, in fact. And in the cases of the companies I look at, it is a billion dollar or more um, revenue stream for them every year. Right, and I love it that you start the book uh, with an introduction about billion with a B, right, so that that people are expanding their mindset about what is possible uh, in the profitability side of this. And, you know, I I raise that issue of of this just being something that companies do versus who they are because in the beginning, I think that sustainability was a box that people ticked off – when they had done a couple of things, you know, maybe it was recycling, you know, at the very beginning or, you know, whatever they felt was going to make them green. But it it really has turned into its own industry. That's right. And, I mean, I think sustainability needs to be at the heart of any business uh, to succeed in in the, the future that's coming. But the question I've been asked over the past 10 years I've been working on this subject is the question I've been asked way too often is what's the business case for sustainability? And people don't really say it like that. What they say is, yeah, but, you know, what's the business case? And I was so sick of trying to answer this question. And I realized that the answer most sustainability people have for that question is too soft. It's about efficiencies and savings instead of revenue and growth. It's about, you know, in the future business will instead of real money right here, right now. And that was what I wanted to change. And I knew I needed the evidence to do it with. So the intent of the book really is to offer that much more definitive, much more top line business case for sustainability, where again, it isn't just about efficiencies and savings. It's really about the future of your business and the future of your business growth. Well, and I completely jumped over the way that I normally start my show, which is tell us about you before we dive deeply into the book and even into the topic. How did you get started? I mean, as, as a child, were you concerned about our planet? Um, how, how did this all evolve? I'm actually quite typical of uh, 
of many consumers um, in the way that I got into this, which is to say it was something I'd always been sort of interested in. I worked for many years in advertising. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was a brand planner working with big global brands, so I was able to see the kind of influence and impact to create culture and drive change that marketing has. And then I went off to have my first baby. And this is what we see with a lot of people is that you have your first child and suddenly these issues become much more important to you because you realize you've got to kind of think about the future that they will get to inhabit and your responsibility to them is a real kind of um, wake-up call to think differently about where sustainability fits. And so I actually went back from my maternity leave with my first kid, having spent my maternity leave kind of blogging about living green um, and went to the head of my ad agency and said, you know what? I want to start a sustainability practice where we advise our clients on how to turn sustainability into advantage for their business and their brand. Because it was a personal passion of mine, but I could also really see that this was where business was starting to move. And um, I was fortunate enough that I was given permission to go ahead and explore that. And that's where it all began for me um, in, in about 2006, so 10 years ago, um, within the context of an ad agency. Um, and I began from there to work with the United Nations and Coca-Cola and um, all kinds of other big global entities to really start um, thinking about what's the role for sustainability in, the, in business and brand and how can it be more than just kind of an afterthought or a bolt-on, how can it really be central to the way you approach the world? Mm, very interesting. Now, you tell a, a story right at the beginning of the book uh, characterizing uh, Chipotle against uh, kind of one of the old standards, Burger King. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you can you give us a picture about how their focus on sustainability has really made them not just into a billion dollar company, but uh, their revenues are actually more than a billion dollars a quarter now. So this is really where the book began. Actually, was you know I was on deadline for an essay on this perennial topic of can purpose and profit coexist, and I, I was screaming yes, yes. But as I looked at the facts I had in front of me to, to put into this essay, I knew there was nothing in there that was going to convince a naysayer. So I did what people do when it's late and they're on deadline and they're desperate. I hit Google. <laughs> and I was, I was kind of lost until I stumbled on this information that in 2012, Chipotle had revenues of $2 billion. Now, this is a brand that uses its marketing dollars to advocate for sustainable agriculture and um, you know, includes in its supply chain lots of more um, ethical, humane, or sustainable ingredients. And it felt like kind of this startup, this disruptor. And yet here it was with $2 billion in revenue. And I did a double take. I was like, billion with a B. Because there's something about that billion, right? You know, in the language of business, uh, billion has this special cachet. Um, and if, you, if your business reaches that size, it takes on this whole new level of credibility. And for a sustainable company like Chipotle to have doubled that benchmark, I felt like that might actually be a thing. So... <laughs> With that discovery, I then got to really dig in, and I was able to quickly ascertain, in fact, Chipotle had overtaken Burger King. And um, at the time of publishing, Chipotle had four, over $4 billion a year in revenue, and Burger King had flatlined to below um, $1 billion. And I was just thinking to myself, this might be the moment we've been waiting for, where we see these new sustainable businesses on the rise, and the sort of titans of the American strip mall who haven't evolved to keep up with this new trend falling away. So that was kind of where the book began. Hmm. Very, very and, interesting. And I think what you see is, uh, obviously, Chipotle's had some challenges lately, um, but what you see is that the way they approach things is just very much in tune with what consumers are looking for today. It, it's healthier, it's fresher, um, it's more, more of an engaging experience, and guess what? They're also better for the planet. Um, it's more humane and ethical. So it's a complete win-win-win. 
So as we take a look at, at the contents of the book, and, and it really is, you've separated it into six different major topics. The first one is about being iconoclastic, and this happens to be one of my favorite words in the world, <laughs> and some people may not even know what it is because they're not iconoclastic. So let's start by, by defining that, and then give me some idea about the characteristics of what it takes to be that iconoclastic leader. Absolutely. Well, what was interesting was that, um, you know, I, I knew that if I wanted to write a book, I had to find out what these companies have in common. Otherwise, there wasn't a success formula that others could replicate. And the first thing that emerged really clearly from the research as a common factor was this iconoclastic leader. And in each case, what I mean by that is there's one individual kind of stood up and said, you know what, we've got to do something different. We've got to embrace sustainability and we've got to do it in a very aggressive, ambitious way. And so I call them iconoclastic leaders because they're going against the grain. They're doing something different from the received business wisdom and um, they're doing it in a way that is really bold and ambitious and visionary. And what you see with these leaders, interestingly, is that seven of the nine sample companies, which by the way include Chipotle, GE, um, Unilever, um, and a whole host of others, IKEA, what you see is that um, in each case, this is one individual who stood up and said, we have to do this. Um, and in seven of the nine cases, that person is the CEO or chairman, which is really surprising. They don't have sustainability in their job title. And what I say is because this isn't just a sustainability strategy. It is an agenda for business transformation for these companies. And to drive that kind of change through a large organization, sometimes you have to be the boss and you have to be an iconoclastic boss. And these guys also share um, four shared personality traits and I call them the four C's. They have conviction. They have this inner belief that happens to them. That we just have to do this. There's no going back. They have courage, the courage to stand up and say to their colleagues, their shareholders, um, their competitors and, and sort of really business at large, we're going to do this thing even though you guys think it isn't a viable business strategy then they're committed because it is challenging to push this kind of change through an organization. If you fell at the first hurdle, you'd never get there. So they're super committed and they stay the course. And finally, this is the fourth C, and this is the one that I think will become less important as time goes on. They're a little contrarian. They're not afraid to be a little bit outside of the received right. wisdom. In fact, they, they're, they're quite provocative. And so that was, the, that was what I saw in each case is there was an individual like this who was really kind of the instigator of the whole thing. And then you take that individual who, who is pushing the rest of the organization, perhaps out of their comfort zone, and maybe not even with a very clear roadmap, um, and then setting out with a goal uh, of disruptive innovation. So That's what right. role uh, does innovation, because I, mean, I, I wouldn't actually think of sustainability and innovation together, right? So you, uh -huh. you're, you're introducing yes. something interesting here. And, you know, that's kind of the point. You just summed it up. No, nobody does. Few people do. And for years, people have seen me coming and they're like, oh, my God, here comes that green woman. She's going to make us feel really guilty about everything we do and ask us to go back to living in a cave and uh, stop refrigerating our food or driving cars. Um, and that's not it at all. That's not what we're talking about here at all. This isn't about slightly greener or more ethically responsible versions of products that already exist. That's what I call Green 1.0. What this is about is using sustainability as a spur to invent the products and services of the 21st century. Think about Tesla, which is one of the green giants. That is not just, you know, um, 
a slightly greener version of, of the car is a totally disrupted technology in the automobile industry. Tesla came in with this completely new technology that the uh, the incumbent automakers had declared wouldn't work, could never be commercially viable. And Tesla said, you know what? We're going to disrupt this industry. And they commercialized that vehicle. And now, I mean, look at their success. And when they began, um, you know, Elon Musk put um, millions of dollars of his own money into that company back in 2004 when it looked as though that was a crazy thing to do. It looked really what I call counterintuitive. But today he looks all kinds of smart. In fact, when he launched the new Model 3, which is the affordable vehicle uh, a couple of months ago, they became a green giant another 14 times over, selling $14 billion worth of those cars on pre-order in the space of, I think, a weekend. So innovation plays an absolutely key role in um in these strategies because it's about the products of the future. It's about innovation. It's not about sustainability as worthy or efficiencies and savings, as I've said. It's about um, how do we make it not just greener, but overall better. And that's what the Green Giants have done. So the individual that today fills the role, and and whether it's a vice president level or or whatever uh, layer within the company, the sustainability person, right, who's leading that charge mm-hmm. under the leader who is iconoclastic, yeah. um, have their skill sets changed? Uh, because I, I remember um, I, I was with American Airlines Sabre uh, back when, well, when the two companies were one, and then Sabre, which was the technology part of the company rolled out, and, and Sabre really uh, wanted to lead in, in this arena. And so the individual that they hired for that role, you know, had kind of that traditional look at the the cost-saving side, look at the green buildings and those kinds of things. So does the new sustainability leader have to have new skill sets? It's a fascinating conversation that I've been having with a lot of those folks as I've shared the book with them at um, different conferences. In fact, I just got back from a fantastic conference called Sustainable Brands this week where I shared the book with a lot of folks who are in that role. And the thing is that all the things they've always done are as important, if not more important than ever. So it isn't that all of that work you've just described around efficiency, savings, carbon footprint, water footprint, all of that stuff is even more important than it's ever been and their skill set in that in that area has to be completely top-notch, but they're also having to really now think in a much bit broader way about the business. So I'm asking these folks to, you know, be really good at so many different things, and that's not easy. I think one of the biggest roles they can play, honestly, is that role of kind of CEO whisperer. So whoever your CEO is, how do you, you know, help them see this business case how do you bring them some of these ideas and that's where the sustainability person of today needs to be able to think about business about innovation about um you know the entire corporate structure and how a business restructures to enable this kind of innovation and this kind of revenue stream to emerge so yeah i'm asking a lot of these people but um there are many really talented people in these roles at companies now who i think are hungry for this kind of access they see the potential and it's now their job to really help their CEOs see it too uh, so that they can set their company on this new course. So the person that is leading that charge, uh, again, my observation is they still do fall into um, two, two different camps. And perhaps it's the CEOs that come from the finance background and who have come up through the ranks um, you know, in that kind of track uh, that are what I will call the former, so the 
the sustainability, uh, you know, 1.0 or maybe even 2.0, mm-hmm. but but certainly not the the one that we're talking about today. And chapter three really talks about the one of I think the core characteristics of the person who really takes sustainability to the next level, which is the higher purpose. And you talked about. Uh, really the link between can you have the higher purpose and be more profitable? And the answer in your research is clearly yes. So is that the real difference, that burning desire to really make things better that changes uh, the nature of sustainability? I definitely think it's a key criteria. I think what we see with these green giants is that um, they do have that purpose beyond profit. These leaders are asking, not they're asking, you know, why do we exist? Why is our business here? Which is, of course, the most fundamental question you can ask yourself about your business. And increasingly, the answer they're coming up with is something much more than just generating returns for shareholders. Um, they're asking about, you know, really, what's the purpose of business as an institution? Should it just be about making money, or should it be about creating a more rounded definition of social, environmental, and financial value? And very much the green giants are in, in that camp. But fascinatingly, what the research shows is that having a purpose beyond profit makes a business more profitable than pursuing profit alone. So I call that the purpose paradox. It's a surprising fact that if you focus on profit, you'll be less profitable than if you focus on your core purpose, <laughs> delivering that. Um, you'll actually end up making more money. So it feels counterintuitive, like many of right. the ideas in the book, but actually the data are proving it out. And I think no, and you know, it's it, interesting. You know. I, I actually did a radio show for uh, a season uh, a couple of years ago that was all about, uh, I called it, uh, well, I call myself a philanthropist because I'm always looking at ways <laughs> to help uh, achieve my higher purpose, which is giving back, but to build that into the business model of, of what I'm doing. And the show was all about companies who had built giving. And, and again, I, I kind of extracted that part of sustainability out, right? But I did that on purpose because I did want to show that people, people and companies who give are better off than those that don't. Mm, yeah. I love that idea. And there are many reasons why, right? I mean, so what we're seeing is that um, this is the kind of company that employees want to work for now. If you could work for, let's call it kind of a soulless corporation that is enriching it just its shareholders, <laughs> that's, is that inspiring? Or is it inspiring no. to say, let's make sustainable living commonplace. Let's help bring out the potential in every athlete in the world. You know, these are the, the kind of purpose statements that we see at the Green Giants. They're so inspiring. And, you know, each of us, is looking now, I think, very much for what's our purpose, what's our personal purpose. And if you can then find a corporation that aligns with your personal purpose, you've got such a powerful combination. You've got, uh, you know, an employee who's motivated, who's really productive, who's likely to be much more loyal, and who's going to really outperform. So you're going to see that translate into business results. Um, Whereas what we see is that, you know, higher retention rates are, are now showing up much more at these purpose-driven brands than at non-purpose-driven. Because once you've got the choice, why would you pick the one that feels kind of less rounded? You'd pick the one that's going to really make you want to get out of bed in the morning. We're seeing the same with consumers. They're really These kinds of purpose-driven brands are really resonating with them. So at Unilever, for example, which is one of the green giants, their portfolio of purpose-driven brands, which is not yet all their brands, although that is their ambition, that portfolio of purpose-driven brands has been growing for the past two years 
at about twice the rate of the rest of their portfolio, delivering 50% of their growth. And um, the rate of that growth has accelerated. It's incredible because now, again, consumers have the choice between a very functional, rational brand or a brand that feels really powerful, like think about Dove with the campaign for real beauty, um, or Hellman's that's advocating for real food, or Lifeboy, which in um, developing markets is really helping with hand washing and ending child mortality. You know, right. you can either buy a bar of you can either buy a bar of soap, or you can help keep kids alive till the age of five. Which would you rather do? You know, it's a no-brainer. So we're seeing that purpose translate into business results. But the interesting thing about Unilever, and and I was going to ask you this question as we talk about the next chapter, so we'll just jump on to that, is the next chapter is about having it built in and not bolted on. Mm -hmm. So the Tesla example you gave makes perfect sense that they had an opportunity to look at the status quo at the way all of the automobile manufacturers had always operated and, and you know, all of the bad things that it does to our environment and and just really the work uh, environment as well, right? It, mm-hmm. it was just so different. Um, Unilever, I wouldn't have actually thought that they would be included in this particular chapter because you would think that they are bolting on sustainability because they've been around for so long and they've got such a, a broad product line. So it's interesting to hear you tell the story of the growth um, track that they have seen in either these reworked um, you know, statements, because, I mean, Dove has been around since I was little, uh, mm-hmm. so that that's not really a, you know, a, a new brand, but certainly their marketing and the brand story uh, now has sustainability engineered in. That's right. And what I like about the Unilever, for example, is that, you know, I think sometimes large businesses are like, well, it's easy for Chipotle, it's easy for Tesla. They were new. They built this in from the beginning. It's always been part of who they are. What's harder Mm -hmm. for us is that we have an existing um, historical business, legacy business. We can't change that. And the Unilever CEO, Paul Pullman, came in and said, "Uh, yes, we can, and we're going to do it, and we're going to do it in an unbelievable way. And so Unilever, as a portfolio of uh, packaged goods, foods, and personal care brands, had been through a 10-year period of low to no growth. They were operating primarily in very commodity categories where consumers are likely shopping on, you know, price or functionality. And um, Paul Pullman came in, the iconoclastic leader, and said, we have got a new purpose, and our purpose is to make sustainable living commonplace. And he set this corporate strategy to double the business while halving the environmental footprint and increasing the positive social impact. And so what you see there is in terms of built in, not bolted on, that this isn't about his mission for his sustainability team. This is, the, this is his mission for his entire team. It is at the heart of the corporate strategy. Sustainability is how they're going to make their money. It's not just a little afterthought. And that's what we mean by built in, not bolted on. And what you see with those green giants is they're building sustainability into the six structures that run their business, whether that's their cost structure, their incentive structure, how, they're, how their employees are, re, are compensated, uh, their organizational structure, where these folks sit in the organization. They're breaking sustainability out of its little silo and embedding it across the organization. And Unilever is actually widely regarded year after year as uh, the leader on sustainable business indexes. And what we've seen is this strategy returning Unilever to growth after that 10 period of low or no growth, um, which nobody saw coming. And it's, I think it's because they have taken this so very seriously. And it isn't just the sidelines. They're not dividing their energy here. It's what they exist to do 
and so everybody knows what they're getting up to go and do at work every single day and what's inspiring about this example is that it shows you that you can kind of build this into a business that wasn't necessarily doing that before although Unilever's Unilever's founding purpose was actually to make health and hygiene commonplace so what they've actually done is gone back to the historical purpose and kind of reimagined it for a new era very, very interesting. And, you know, it's funny because we, well, first of all, the average individual wouldn't be able to name five Unilever products just because the the Unilever brand, the Unilever name, unlike P&G, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Procter & Gamble uh, really made their name by pushing their name and, and you got to know their products in a different way. But but now we're dealing with a generation that didn't grow up with all of that, right? And and you, in the next chapter, you talk about mainstream appeal uh, mm-hmm. of sustainability. But you give a quote from Hannah Jones, the chief sustainability officer at Nike, that says, our 17-year-old consumers tell us they want a better world. They don't call it sustainability. And, you know, that really struck me because the – those of us who are older, and you know, I'm I'm late fifty something, um, <laughs> you know, we have just used the same terms for so long. Now, I happen to have teenagers, um, you know, unlike most people my age who are already onto the grandchild phase, um, <laughs> you know. So I I have a sixteen year old and an eighteen year old, and and they they don't talk about the word sustainability. So. How much are companies having to shift in really understanding that mainstream isn't necessarily the 40-year-olds and the 50-year-olds, but really taking the whole breadth of, of um, you know, the, the age ranges that are potential consumers for their products? I think it's a really important point because what we saw a lot with the early sort of green marketing, which is really what this chapter is all about, is kind of marketing, is that people put that green leaf or that tree frog or that polar bear on the package or in the advertising and thought that that was what people were looking for. But we ended up seeing this massive intention action gap where consumers said in research they really wanted to live more sustainable lifestyles, but they weren't following through with action. And what we were able to find is all that marketing that labeled things sustainable and green and eco is actually getting in the way of today's mainstream consumer engaging because there are many, many reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is that it actually says to them, hey, this is for crunchy granola hippies or rich elitist snobs. It's not for people like me. (laughs) And I know that sounds crazy, but we tested that hypothesis in research and more than half of Americans think that sustainability is for crunchy granola hippies or rich elitist snobs, not for them. And so what we understood is that we have to really rethink how we bring this to consumers. First of all, certainly millennials do expect it just to be part of an overall great brand. So you look at brands like Warby Parker or um, Jessica Alba's Honest Company, which are what I call next, next billions. They're coming up fast behind. These guys know how to market sustainability, to, particularly to millennials, but really to everybody. It's not, that, it's not as different as you might think. And um, what they do is they build it into the heart of a brand that just is about no trade-offs. It's an overall better brand. And what they get right is that the primary things people are looking for are the benefits they always want. So if you're Chipotle, it's great food. Um, if you're Unilever, it's a great, a great product. But all of the sustainability wrapped in helps to make that an even more attractive proposition. But it can't be that you sort of make it feel green. Because that's, that's what we call a label. You have to lose the labels if you want mainstream consumers to participate because they expect it to be there, but they're never going to buy it first. They're going to buy it as part of an overall better package. Think about Tesla. It's one of the best examples. So 
prior to that, you'd seen these kind of green cars that drove like golf buggies and that were advertising ads with baby seals and, and polar bears. Now, if you think about what you're looking for in a car, it has to be performance first. And so if green cars don't perform, people aren't going to buy them. That's just, it's just simple as that, except for the, 20, the sort of 20% of super greens. When Tesla came in and said, we're just going to make the best damn car ever, and PS, it's going to be the most sustainable car ever, suddenly you've unlocked that mainstream appeal because who doesn't want to be seen driving a Tesla? It's aspirational, it's sexy, it's cool. Um, it's everything that people want in a luxury car. And as that becomes a more mainstream brand, we're going to see that really come down to a to more affordable price point. So what we need is that kind of Tesla moment for all brands where they're just a brilliant overall product, um, but the sustainability is built into the heart. The value proposition not bolted on. comes back mm-hmm. to that again. So is there still cynicism out there about sustainability and, and how how can marketing – overcome that when there have been so many promises uh, and you mentioned you know companies with green marketing claims that uh, actually it was greenwash it wasn't wasn't really true mm. there is there is a high cynicism bar but what we see is that it's often triggered in people's minds by the use of these now quite outdated terms like eco green even sustainable that's not a consumer word um, when I did an analysis of the marketing language of the green giants, and I know I'm calling them green giants, so I'm kind of like contravening my own rule here, but what you see is they don't use those words at all. They use words like healthy, fresh, um, performance, kind of the core attributes of those categories. Um, mm-hmm. So they've lost those labels. And in the process, they're not triggering all of those negative connotations that you get. So when you use green eco and all of that, people are like, ah, oh, hmm, can I trust it? Whereas if you show them kind of, what the attributes of the product are and how sustainability is delivering a benefit to them, rather than focusing on the sustainability itself, you do actually tend to be able to bypass a lot of that cynicism. But the cynicism is real, and I think this is where um, Chapter 6, which I know we're about to talk to, comes in. The companies have to really prove it with their behavior, with their actions, and that's why Chapter 6 is about this new behavioral contract, and that's about companies behaving really well, um, letting their actions speak louder than their advertising, and then, you know, that creates that new level of trust and authenticity that consumers today are really looking for. Right. And but before you can convince the general public, right, and and mm-hmm. using those things that you've learned as you read about the mainstream appeal, you do have to convince your your own team, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all the way down to the front line and and certainly the board level of gaining their support because there likely is some investment that has to be done, you know, that would not perhaps have been in, in the, the plan before. So who signs up for this new behavioral contract and what, what does it contain? Well, the point you're making is so important because this isn't about marketing, right? This is about having a really solid foundation before you go out and tell the story. And you mentioned, you know, your employees, another really core group that you're going to have to convince is the sustainability stakeholders or activist groups or or non-governmental organizations. And these are the groups that often actually make or break um, your success in going to market because they know what they're looking for and they know what good looks like and they also can smell greenwash a million miles away. So you really need them in your corner before you go public because, and you need to ideally have collaborated with them along the way. So this brings us to the new behavioral contract. It's about collaboration with other businesses and with, um, with stakeholders to make sure that you're A, 
on building your strategy on a really robust foundation, but be also really working with others who we all share the same challenges. You know, the days of uh, patents and so forth on sustainability are over. It's time to collaborate on these global challenges and create global solutions. The second is transparency. Um, and of course, you can be really transparent if you've got a really solid foundation because you should have ideally less to hide. That's while acknowledging that nobody is perfect. These companies are not perfect. We are all on a journey. If we had this figured out, we wouldn't be having to worry about climate change and so forth. But be transparent about what you are doing and where there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and people will be really um, will respect that honesty and openness. And the third is responsibility, taking responsibility for the full sort of life cycle of your of your business. What we used to see was businesses saying, well, you know, we don't own the factories, so what goes on in those factories is not our fault or our problem. And the stakeholders are saying, you know what, that's not good enough. You you are that that factory is on your watch. That is, you know, in your supply chain. You have to take responsibility for it. So now what we're seeing is companies really needing to take ownership of everything from how their products are made to ultimately how they're disposed of at the end of life, to how their agricultural raw materials are grown, to how people are treated in their factories. And I don't think I need to sort of um, overstate this, but one great example where we saw a company not taking appropriate responsibility lately was that VW example, where they've been yeah. kind of fudging the results on their emissions, right? Compare them to, to Tesla, who released all their patents into the public domain and so forth. You know, the new behavioral contract now is not about these kind of feel-good business buzzwords. It's about behaving your way to billions, and that's what the green giants do. You also tell a story, and, and this was, oh gosh, now 20 years ago, um, about a story uh, that was in Life magazine and a picture of a 12-year-old Pakistani boy sitting on a dirt floor, and you know he's sewing, and then then you see it, and there are the soccer balls with the Nike swoosh on it. So, uh, you know, how did Nike go from that and, uh, you know, the attitude of, well, you know, I don't control the factory, you know, to where they are now? So from from the research, what, what becomes apparent is that there was a period where nobody in the apparel supply chain was really taking responsibility for these kinds of issues. And because Nike was such a prominent and well-loved brand, it became a bit of a poster child. Because what activists understand is that they can use these high-profile brands as levers to sort of raise the issues that they want addressed. And so Nike had this kind of uh, transformational moment where the CEO said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go from from where we had been to this very aggressive, proactive position. Um, and it started with um, with a CR strategy, but then Hannah Jones, who's the iconoclastic leader at Nike, she's the chief sustainability officer, took on that mantle. And she really, really drove the company to this completely new level of transparency and responsibility and accountability, where they now um, really do um, sit above the competitors. You know, for example, from a company that used to say, well, we don't really think that the factories are our responsibility, what you now see is them publishing a map where you can go look at where the factories are in the world that are creating Nike products. You can see all of them. Nike has a scorecard where they're trying to, uh, first of all, get a sense of where their suppliers are against a series of metrics around social and environmental issues. And then they've got a gold, sorry, a bronze, silver, gold, and they're trying to move everybody up that scale till everybody reaches gold. So they're really now working hand in hand, really in partnership with those factories and their supply chain um, as one part of an overall extremely ambitious and sort of world-class strategy. So you've seen them go 
um, from where a lot of companies begin this journey, honestly, with kind of being reactive to stakeholder pressure to now being well ahead of that and being right out in front. And we see this with, with quite a lot of companies. Even if you're not in the greatest position today, you can really quickly um, get things together, get your act together and start moving forward. Right. Well, and it's so funny you talk about the scorecard being kind of the catalyst for, for that level of transparency. And uh, my daughter, who is 18, has a, a severe McDonald's habit. And so we, we are constantly in the drive through at McDonald's getting her, you know, her hazelnut iced coffee. And... Uh, as we're going through the first window of the drive-thru where they take your money, um, at this particular McDonald's, they've got their scorecard on the wall because that's where the manager's office is, right? So mm. cleanliness, timeliness, you know, I mean, all those things that they're measuring their employees. And so it, all, it always amazes me because, like, I'll look up and I'll see, and let's say cleanliness, you know, it'll be like a 78. And I'll think... I think I'd take that board down, right, rather than having it visible to the person driving through the drive-through because you do want it to motivate your employees. But if you're not going to insist that that be a 99, right, if not a hundred, um, you know, why would you make that visible? So, so how does transparency play? And again, I think we're going back to the characteristic of the, that iconoclastic leader, because I think about when I first got into corporate life, um, I worked, as I mentioned, at American Airlines, and, and Bob Crandall, who was the very, very vocal, uh, very outspoken CEO, uh, he did employee meetings all over the country, and you know he, anybody could ask him anything, and, and the amazing thing was he could answer everything. And and he he was very very open with the employee base, and and whether you want to model yourself after him, I'm not sure. But I mean, he was a brilliant man. But these iconoclastic leaders is transparency one of the things that they personally value? Uh, does that have to be a part of it for this scorecard approach? And uh, you know the the whole. Um, you know, putting putting this behavioral contract in place. Well, let me come at that um, with a couple of thoughts. So, transparency is not a passive concept for the Green Giants. So the way you just described the McDonald's example, well, they're putting it all out there, but it doesn't sound like they're that they're really then doing anything to kind of take action on, on what they're right. seeing. Although, you know, I don't want to speak for McDonald's as a company because I know that they are really ambitious and aggressive on this at an enterprise level. So not trying to detract from all the great work that they are doing at the enterprise level. Um, but transparency is a very active concept for the Green Giants. They're, they really are looking, not just saying, here's what we're up to, but they're really looking aggressively into the far corners of their business, into the value chain. What's going on there? Because the truth of the matter is that if you don't know, that is a risk. You have a risk in your supply chain, a reputational risk, um, perhaps other kinds of risk, volatility and so forth. Um, you need to know that information because if you don't, somebody else will find it out and they will use it against you. And we see this frequently with you know, activists doing audits of people's supply chains and bringing the information to light and publishing it in the media. And the company often has to say, well, we didn't even know that was going on. And that ignorance is no longer a defense. You have to know. So right. transparency is a very, very active concept. And I think these iconoclastic leaders acknowledge that and recognize that and push for it. 
So the conclusion of your book talks about these next billions, which I, I love that concept. And, you know, I want to be one of those companies, by the way, with, a, with my new technology that I'm building. And, and that really is my aspiration is, is uh, reaching that, that billion-dollar mark. But I'm very interested in, in the green giant effect. And, and that's what you talk about here. And these smart companies who have turned sustainability into, in fact, multi-billion dollar businesses in most cases. Um, how can we replicate that? Because that, that's really what you're talking about, is that those companies that are the up-and-comers and who are growing faster than their predecessors because they're getting it early and, and, and building it in, not bolting it on, right? They're, they're mm -hmm. embracing all of these things we've talked about. They are. It really is about all six. You kind of can't pull them apart. Um, and the question you asked, you know, the next billion is the green giant effect. What that's about is this idea that, you know, I've, some people have said to me, well, nine companies, okay, but aren't they just unicorns? You kind of handpick these companies to try and prove your point. And I'm like, well, of course I have. I'm writing a book, like, you know, guilty as charged. But, <laughs> but, and this is the this is the interesting piece. Um, what I see out there is that it isn't just these nine companies. The next billions are these companies we've we've spoken about a little bit throughout the call, like um, like Warby Parker or Jessica Alba's Honest Company, or in the apparel category, there are brands like Zavi that are coming up in the image of the green giant, and they're growing really, really fast, and they're very successful. Then you see the green giant effect. This is where um, con conventional counterparts in these categories who've been disrupted and now being forced to play catch up, and you're seeing the conventional sort of fast food players bringing free-range eggs and sustainable produce into their supply chain. You're seeing all of the auto um, traditional auto companies scrambling to bring their hybrid or their electric vehicle to market. So what you see is that as these green giants set that new bar, everybody else then is kind of forced to play catch up, um, and that that getting there first has been valuable for their business, but it's also then having a transformational effect on their industries. And I just want to share one piece of news with you, actually, which is that this week at the Sustainable Brands Conference in San Diego, I announced that in addition to the next billions and the green giant effect, there are actually eight new green giants um, that have either come wow. to my attention or passed that billion dollar mark since uh, since the, uh, the book was published 10 months ago. And um, so, yeah, so this is a burgeoning movement. The total that uh, the new and old green giants together uh, generate each year is now over $150 billion in revenue just from these strategies, not from their other business uh, lines or business units. So really, I think this is a sort of a snowball. Um, and if you'd like, we can talk through what some of those new giants are if you're interested. Yes, absolutely. So we've seen, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Made to Matter line of products at Target, um, but yes. those are these purpose-driven brands, they're awesome brands, that passed a billion dollars in 2015. Um, REI, the co-op, is the outdoor um, co-op is on, on the list. Um, then there's uh, some other grocery chains. So we have Kroger with Simple Truth. We have Costco, who, which is now um, the biggest seller of organics in America with $4 billion in annual revenue from their organics. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yep, amazing. Who, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Um, we have Organic Valley, which is... Um, you know, they make organic produce. Primarily, they make dairy products, but they are the world's first all-organic billion-dollar company. Mm. Uh, the Tame Celestial, they own a ton of also consumer goods uh, brands that people are probably probably using some of, like Terra Chips and um, Arrowhead Mills uh, and Ella's Organic Baby Food and some of these brands that you might not realize. Uh, they're they're a, uh, over a $2 billion company. 
And the final two are Vestas, the wind energy company, the first green giant energy company, mm-hmm. eight, 8 billion euros a year, decimal wind power. And finally, Walmart, who have their products that are made by sustainability leaders that's a $1.5 billion for them in, in 2015. So those are the eight new giants. And I think there are many more. I'm hoping to keep updating this list because this is a growing movement. Right. This, is the, this is the future of business and the pace of change is accelerating. And, and so that kind of brings me to, you know, what, what's next for you? I mean, I know you include in, in the book the, the methodology for the research that you did. Uh, but uh, I know you do public speaking. So if somebody mm-hmm. wants you to come and talk about this to their organization, how can they get in touch with you to do that? Well, I'm actually the CEO of uh, uh, the North American CEO of a company called Futera, and we're a sustainability strategy and consulting firm. So we actually advise clients on uh, how to become green giants. So that's the first thing is that, um, you know, we, 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 that's what's next for me really is growing my own green giant here at Futera. Um, and we are um, based in New York, and you can reach me there at um, Freya at wearefutera.com. And then if you want to follow me on social media, my, my Twitter handle is Freya1. Uh, F-R-E-Y-A, digit one, and that's a good place to follow me. Um, but yes, my, my goal really is to sort of both keep an eye on the Green Giant movement as it grows, make sure that I'm really in contact with how that's evolving and celebrating these companies as they as they reach this really, really significant milestone. Because I think it's it's so important for us all to see and to understand that this isn't just a kind of a fly-by-night, uh, it wasn't just a trend, it really is this kind of underlying business driver of the future. Um, so I'll be keeping an eye on the green giants and then I'll be helping, um, hopefully helping many more companies become green giants um, as part of our business. And then, yes, I do love speaking and sharing the word here. I really wrote this book for um, sustainability leaders trying to talk their um talk their ceos into taking this on and so if anyone would like me to come and talk to their executives about this business opportunity i'd be uh, very very happy to do so excellent so it's we are futera f-u-t-e-r-r-a dot that's com right. that's right and uh that is it's um uh, it's a beautiful site, by the way. You guys have done uh, an amazing job. And, and so are you posting there, these new companies, or, or where yep. where can on we the follow the list? Yes. The blog um, on there will be a good place. And I also have a website for the book, um, www.greengiantsbook.com. So quite a few different ways to, to access the information. Excellent, excellent. Well, of Freya, course, the book is on Amazon. Been... <laughs> It has been uh, just really, really fascinating. I mean, it's just a topic I don't think about every day, unfortunately. Uh, I I probably should think about it more, and I definitely now have a new perspective and uh, that my own growth plans have to include this whole notion of not just thinking about making more money, but, but really uh, and I'm going to quote what you say on your website, to change the world, first imagine a better one. And I, I love that. So imagine better. Absolutely. That's what we. Uh, that's our mantra at Futera. Imagine better, make it happen. And I really think that's what the best entrepreneurs do. And hopefully um, many more of them will be inspired to incorporate, as you said, um, this thinking into their, their disruptive uh, innovation plans. Right, right. 
Well, thank you so, so much for being with us today, and I hope you have an amazing weekend. We've we've been having so much rain here in Florida, and I know uh, my friends who live in California say, send some our way, mm. but uh, <laughs> we, we are soggy here in Tampa, Florida, so I hope you have a better weather than, than we are having. Thank you very much. Well, I'm in New York, and uh, it's looking pretty good out there, so... Um, but I hope you have a great weekend as well. And thank you so much for inviting me on the show. It's great to have a chance to talk oh, to you today. Thank you too. And uh, for those of you who would like to learn more about the Game Changer Network, you can go to our new website, which is thegamechanger.network. And you can listen to uh, our radio shows there. You can join the network. Uh, our mantra is that it takes a village to build a company. And these weekly interviews that we do with authors is to actually help people have the information that they need to build their company. And next week, uh, we are going to be talking about Performance Breakthrough, uh, which is a, a book that uh, Kathy Salt has written uh, about a rev- revolutionary approach to learning and growing. So thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you again soon. Go out and figure out how to change your game today. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald.